Would you please turn in your Bibles there to chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's been three months, a three-month break from this book, and we've got to finish out chapter 15 and then chapter 16, and then, then we go somewhere else after that. So while you're turning there, we'll begin at verse 35. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 35, we'll read to the end of the chapter. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Let's pray. Father, as we return now to your letter to the Corinthians, we are grateful for this topic because it answers questions that may be residing in our own hearts, doubts that we may have. We wonder about our future with you, what it will be like, and you begin to unfold that before our eyes here. And what we know in particular from this section of chapter 15 is that we will not be then as we are now. And there are some glorious improvements to this old body here that are going to be done. And it's all so that we can serve you and glorify you forever. And so open our ears, open our hearts, give us the ability to understand through your spirit and to live in light of these truths. That is the ultimate goal here. Not just knowledge, but life lived in light of your truth. Help us to be doers of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it's a foundational truth of the gospel. If the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is removed, then Christianity can be tossed on the trash pile consisting of all the world's worthless religions. You can just add Christianity to that same pile if Christ is not raised from the dead. It doesn't matter which, which one you choose at that point, right? They each have their own set of spiritual demands and promises for this life and maybe even for the next, but none of them will matter in the end because you will still be in the grave if Christ himself was not raised. Only one person has conquered death, Jesus Christ. He is the one who declares that he is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in him will live even if he dies. The father then validated this claim by raising Jesus from the dead. So because Jesus rose from the grave, so too will all who believe in him. They will live even if they die. The resurrection of Christ, though, was not something that the Corinthians were disputing. They, they had received the gospel that the Apostle Paul had preached when he came to them, which included believing that God had raised Christ from the dead. Paul gives no indication that they had changed their minds about the resurrection. What we find instead is not a denial of Christ's resurrection, but more so confusion about their own resurrection. Yet the heart of this confusion is the question that is put forward by Paul in verse 35. Look there. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So, Paul chooses to take a twofold approach to correct this confusion about the resurrection body. First, in verses 1 through 34, he makes the case for the reality of the resurrection of the dead. And then having established that the dead are indeed raised, he then explains in verses 35 through 58 how the resurrection of the dead is possible. So let's back up a bit and let's first see how Paul established how the dead are indeed raised. So Paul began by laying out the resurrection of Christ as the foundational truth of the gospel. He did this in verses 1 through 11. Follow along with me. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he followed that by showing that if Christ is raised bodily from the dead, so too must all be raised bodily. And he does this in verses 12 through 19. Look at verse 16. He shows how you can't have one without the other. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. See, he's not talking about Christ's resurrection as much as you can see him working towards talking about their resurrection. But he began with Christ's resurrection. 
And then he shows how the dead will rise and death will be defeated because of the certain victory of God's kingdom. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, for he, Christ, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So Christ's resurrection is simply the first fruits of God's triumph over all his enemies, of which death itself is the final one. And it is this hope of Christ's triumph over death and the resurrection of believers that Paul says that's what motivates him to live both courageously and obediently for Christ. In fact, he shows that without the hope of resurrection, the Christian life would become an absurdity. For one thing, sacrifice and risk for Christ and risk for the gospel, all that becomes pointless. But also, so does living a godly life become pointless. It becomes optional. And this is where Paul makes a very important connection here in this letter. As we know, he's been addressing many moral issues in this letter. And Paul here, he points to their denial of the resurrection of the dead as being at the root of all these various moral failures that he has been addressing in this letter. Look at verse 34. He says, Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. See, this is, the, this is where he is taken. He started with the resurrection of Christ. He links the resurrection of Christ with our resurrection. And then he links the resurrection with their obedience. And with their living for Christ. And he says, stop it. You need to be, think rightly about the future. About your future. This body you're living in now. Oh, it may die and go in the grave, but that's not the end. And that's not the end of your body. That's just the end of this part. So having established that the dead are indeed raised, and then how significant their belief in the resurrection of the dead is to their present Christian walk, Paul is now ready to answer the question that was really at the heart of their confusion all along. So he's saying it this way. He's saying, so having, having shown you that this belief that you thought was absurd, this belief that there is no resurrection of the dead, that this belief that you thought was absurd is actually essential to your faith and the proper living out of your faith. I've shown you this. Now I'll answer your specific question about the resurrection body. I wonder, I wonder if Paul had a bit of an edge in this response. He he certainly knew Corinth. It was a Roman city, but it was still made up of people who were Greeks and who thought like Greeks. And there was simply no understanding in Greek thought as to how an earthly body that is physical and perishable can be made suitable for a life in a heavenly realm that is spiritual and imperishable. Earthly bodies and heavenly existence are altogether incompatible. They are as different as apples are from oranges. 
And given the difference between life on earth and life in heaven, they simply couldn't understand how the resurrection of the dead makes any sense. At the same time, though, Paul links their disbelief in the resurrection of the dead to that, he says in verse 36, of thinking like a fool. Now, he doesn't call them fools, but certainly says that even a fool knows that when you sow a seed, what grows out of the ground looks very different from what you put into the ground. Only a fool would fail to see that the God who transformed the seed by His power, let alone created the universe and everything in it from nothing, can just as easily take a body suited for a brief earthly existence and then transform it in the resurrection into a spiritual body that's fit for an eternal heavenly existence. The title of the message this morning is Your Resurrection Body. Fashioned by God, to glorify Christ forever. Your resurrection body, fashioned by God to glorify Christ forever. And with God's help, I hope to show you that for every believer in Christ, God will resurrect and transform your earthly body into one fashioned by His power to glorify Christ forever. Let me just summarize this sermon again this way. God will resurrect and transform your earthly body into one fashioned by His power to glorify Christ forever. And as we read Paul's explanation about the resurrection body, I I found four applications for us to, to seek to apply as we go forward. First, you need to listen to the skeptic's objections. Listen to the skeptic's objections. Perhaps in doing so, you might hear some of your own misgivings about the resurrection of the dead, which might be keeping you from living a life for Christ as you should. Second, you need to learn from the Father's illustration. For in it, we gain much, <clears throat> some much-needed hope and encouragement to press on in gospel ministry, even as our present bodies fail us. Third, God wants you to look forward to your body's transformation. Your present body is failing. It's going to continue to fail. That's inevitable. But God has a glorious, imperishable body planned for you that will never break down. It's never going to lead you astray and in which you will finally be able to serve and glorify Christ perfectly. And then finally, it should lead you to long for the Savior's appearing long for the savior's appearing which is when god by his great power will transform the dead making all of us in the image of his son and inaugurating our new eternal heavenly ministry and what a glorious life that is going to be so first we begin with the skeptics and their objections so i want all of you first here to to listen to the skeptics objections Listen to the skeptics' objections. Don't listen to them, though, to hear what their objections are. Listen to hear if they echo some of your objections, some of your doubts, some of your denials or your fears. Look at verse 35 again. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Now remember, these, these doubts, they're not 
from those who deny that there is a resurrection, but those who denied the idea that the resurrection of the body was in any way a good thing. And so if, if it's difficult to say whether their question is a legitimate attempt to understand something difficult, which would essentially be asking, well, how is it possible that the dead are raised? Right? That, that could be a legitimate question. But this whole questioning could also really be more of a mocking response. A mocking question in that it presents kind of a, you could call it like a grotesque conundrum. What kind of body can the dead possibly have? Now, not knowing for sure, because it could be one, it could be the other. This could be a legitimate question that they're asking. It could be them kind of mocking this whole idea. I think it's worthwhile to address both possibilities because either one of them may be the question that you have in your heart. The first objection of the skeptic is that a resurrection body is not possible. A resurrection body is not possible. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? This is really a question of unbelief. How is it even possible that the dead are raised? In death, you know, a, a body decomposes and eventually it, it turns to dust. It might be that the, the person is buried. It might be that they're cremated or, or something tragic like being, you know, lost out in the wilderness and their body's not even found. Either way, the body is going to eventually decompose and it's going to turn to dust. How is it possible for those elements that's, that once made up that body to be reassembled and then somehow to be reanimated. So for the sake of the argument here and the way it's kind of being put forward, let's, let's put together our own little conundrum here. Think of how many untold thousands of people have been, let's say, lost out at sea whose bodies might have been eventually eaten by sharks or some other kind of a sea creature. Well, let's say that one of those sharks that ate somebody who was lost at sea and died at sea, well, let's say that shark that ate that person then gets caught by some fisherman. And then that fisherman eats that shark. And then that fisherman goes on vacation. And he dies in a plane crash while flying over the Rocky Mountains during a massive storm. So you've got a person who died at sea, whose body was consumed by a shark, and then the shark was consumed by another person, and then that man dies in a plane crash that explodes over the mountains. It's a little, it's a little far-fetched, but let's just go with it. How is that original person's body going to possibly be restored? You know, it really doesn't matter what far-fetched picture you try to paint. The question is not, at least it should not be, how is this possible? The question is really this. Why anyone who believes in a God who created the universe from nothing, think? why would you think that restoring a body from wherever its elements might be scattered, even in the whole universe, why would that be any more difficult for him than making the body in the first place? See, when Paul stood before King Agrippa, he asked a similar question. It's in Acts 26. He says, why is it considered, this is Paul speaking to the king, 
Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Why is God's restoring a body more difficult to believe than His creating the universe? It it really doesn't matter the circumstances of a person's death or where a person dies. The body could be embalmed and stuck in a tomb. What's going to happen after enough time surpasses? The body's going to turn to dust. Can you see that this is a question of unbelief? Because the Corinthians could not fathom how this was possible. They refused to believe that it was possible. Now, how often do we do this with God? We can't see how something is possible. So we stop believing it's possible, even for God. Maybe maybe you would never admit this out loud, but... But, but in your heart, you stop believing that it's possible for God to save your wayward child or to mend some broken relationship or to heal some sickness that you have. And I may not be able to speak to whatever specific doubt or, or concern uh, of your specific circumstances, but I can urge you, though, not to give in to unbelief, not to allow yourself to believe Something that is impossible for God to accomplish. That He can do that. He can accomplish what concerns you. Now that's a much bigger bigger topic than I can really address right now. But let's just listen to what James says about this. About doubting God. Look at James chapter 4. Keep your finger here and jump over to James. It's right after Hebrews. James chapter 4. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. See, if God has not acted in the way that you think that He should, don't look for any lack in God. He knows what He's doing. He knows why He's doing what He's doing. Can you accept that that you are going to point the finger at God and accuse Him of being unable when the real accusation is that He's unwilling? That's what you're really struggling with. He seems unwilling because he's unloving or he's uncaring or he's stingy or he's prejudiced. See, that's unbelief too. Only it's more ugly because you're calling God's character into question. And if that describes you, the first thing that you need to do is you need to repent and then believe what God tells you in his word about himself. And start thinking and acting in light of what He tells you. Not just what you are discerning through your circumstance. So that's the first objection. That a resurrection body is not possible. Now, maybe you believe that a resurrection is is possible. you got no trouble with that. But you just don't see it as probable. The second objection is that a resurrection body is not probable. It's not probable. 
See, to these Corinthians, it was it was inconceivable to think of a future existence in bodies that are ones like we presently have. Now think of how about how much trouble we have with the bodies. Think of how much trouble they give us even right now. I, I certainly wouldn't want to be reunited with this body forever in heaven. Or my knees are buckling, my, my hips are stiff, I've got a pain in my back every now and then that keeps me from lifting heavy things. Right? That just would not be probable to have that kind of a body forever. And the Corinthians were assuming that the resurrected body is going to be like this body. And that was just inconceivable to them. So being Greeks, many of them were taught that the body, because it was physical, was evil. Greek thought viewed the body more so as a prison. And the hope was to be freed from it, not entrapped in it forever. And this is why to many of them a resurrection body was just not probable. And Paul is going to explain that the resurrection body, it's, it's not going to be like this body. There is going to be continuity between your body right now and your resurrection body but it is going to be wonderfully different. So those are the, those are the two objections about the resurrection body as, as represented by the, the question that these skeptics had. But I want to add one more that is an objection that the Bible says is in the heart of the unbeliever. See, as a Christian, you, you could struggle with the idea of the resurrection being probable. Or maybe even possible. You might struggle with that idea, but the unbeliever doesn't want to be resurrected at all. The third objection is that a resurrection body is not wanted. A resurrection body is not wanted. So I, I wasn't here last week. We were up visiting uh, my parents up in Washington, uh, celebrating their 65th wedding anniversary my mother's 88 my father's 87 neither of them are saved uh, I, would, I would describe them as God appreciators at best they have no beef with Christianity that Rosita and I have heard over the last uh, 30 years of our marriage so my dad and I after kind of the the festivities that we had up there as a family. My dad and I were the last ones uh, awake. We were downstairs in the kitchen and I was finishing up some dishes and stuff. I was praying for an opportunity to speak with him about the Lord. I knew that our home fellowship group has, was praying as well as were other of you who knew about this visit. Uh, Rosita had been reminded me before, like, many people are praying. Many people are praying. So, I was praying how this opportunity might open up. We were leaving the next morning. So if a spiritual conversation was going to happen, it was going to have to be right there. So as he got up and he was walking towards the pantry to turn out the light, I just asked him, uh, so dad, what do you think happens when you die? And he didn't take too long to answer. Well... Nothing. But thankfully then he turned towards me and he said, what do you think? (laughs) 
I was so grateful for that response. Spent the next uh, uh, 10 to 15 minutes talking with him. I told him about God who sent his son into the world to rescue sinners. And when we were done, he had agreed to read through the Gospel of John to learn about who this Jesus was who came to rescue sinners and to be asking himself if he needed to be rescued and from what did he need to be rescued. Let me go back to his response about what he thinks happens when you die. His response really sums up every sinner's hope about death. That it's just the end. Finito. The lights go out forever. All conscious thoughts and existence ends when the body dies. There's nothing after this life is over. Now simply from from observation, this would appear to be the case. Once the heart stops beating and the lungs stop breathing, the body dies and life appears to be over. There, there's nothing to observe physically that tells you that the soul of that person has somehow moved on. So the logical conclusion about what happens after you die is nothing. That belief that, that nothing happens when you die is called annihilationism. Once your body dies, that which makes you, you, ceases to be, ceases to exist. Now, while annihilationism seems to be, you know, a a logical conclusion, the Bible is what tells us otherwise. The Bible says that all men and women live their entire life in slavery to a very specific fear. The author of Hebrews, when he was explaining why the Son of God became a man, this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, therefore, since the children, that's you and I, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, he likewise also partook of the same, flesh and blood. That, through death, now you see why he became a man. Through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and, now listen to this, he might free those. Oh, what am I enslaved to? Oh yeah, you're a Christian. You're going to tell me I'm enslaved to sin. Well, that's true. But he says that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I can personally attest to that fear. I grew up in my parents' home, a secular but moral home. We did not go to church except on one occasion that I can remember. The Christmas Eve candlelight service at the Air Force Academy Chapel in Colorado Springs, Colorado, in 1977. It was a Saturday. Apparently it made quite an impression upon me because here I am 45 years later and I still remember 
that one visit to church. So I was never taught what the Bible says about death. But I had a fear of dying. I have very very specific memories of me as a nine-year-old boy about being afraid to die for one specific reason. Judgment. Little did I know how right this fear was. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Now, some may think that this is horrible. You know, a child? Why should a child be burdened with such fear? You know, they see this as some kind of a, of a, of a regretful consequence of our Christian culture and West, Western society. They want to change this. Make no mistake, I had an idyllic childhood. Especially when I was nine years old. That was like the golden years of being a nine-year-old. I had the coolest bike to ride around on. I had the best toy. They, you, your toys today don't even compare to the toys that we used to have when I was nine years old. And I know Lyle, if he were here, he'd dispute with me because he was nine years old a little sooner than I was and his to- toys were cool too. I had all kinds of friends in my neighborhood. I was a happy-go-lucky kid. But the moment you asked me about death, the fear of judgment was that had always is lurking right there in the back of my head that would be right there reminding me that I really didn't believe in my heart that at death I would cease to exist now we get to the heart of this third objection and why a resurrection body is not wanted annihilationism removes the problem of judgment Resurrection, on the other hand, it makes accountability for your sins inescapable. Even though I never went to church, at nine years old, I understood that I was a sinner. And I feared being held accountable. I don't remember being able to counter that fear. But others certainly can counter this fear. They suppress it. They move on from it, at least outwardly. They tell themselves... There's no resurrection. Death is the end. They, they speak confidently about the foolishness of religion. Legendary physicist Stephen Hawking, this is what he said. Quote, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Hawking is just one of many champions of annihilationism who who preach that religion and judgment is a fairy tale. But what do you think? Here's what the Apostle Paul thinks. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. He's appearing in Athens at the Areopagus, and he gets a chance to speak to all these philosophers who love to hear different things. And he says in verse 30 and 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, 
because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men. Proof of what? Proof of what? Proof that he will judge all men. Well, what's the proof? God says he furnished proof, here it goes, by raising Christ from the dead. See, instead of just judging the world as he could have, God instead fixed a future day when he's going to judge the world. And he declares to all men everywhere, repent before that day comes. And the proof that day is coming is that he has already declared who the judge will be. Which he did when he raised him from the dead. Right? Through his son, Jesus Christ. God will judge this world in righteousness. God's declaration to men, for all men everywhere, he says, to repent. This is an act of his grace. See, over 2,000 years later, it's still echoed in my little nine-year-old heart. I tried over the next seven years to ignore it, but my, my efforts were in vain. See, God was drawing me to himself. At the age of 16, I, I finally repented after hearing at a youth group the good news that, that Jesus died in my place as judgment for my sin. And then and only then did that fear of judgment finally not because I became religious, but because I accepted the one whom God sent into the world to rescue sinners like me. Have you repented of your sin? Or are you continuing to pursue your sin while holding out the hope that you will just be annihilated when you die? See, the day of judgment is fixed. The judge has already been appointed. And as a sinner, you have every reason to fear this day. So take the advice of a, of a former slave of that fear and repent and believe in the one whom God sent to rescue sinners. So, when we listen to the objections of the skeptics here in the Corinthian church, we hear that in their eyes a resurrection body it was either not possible because of what happens to the body in death or it just wasn't probable because the thought of living forever in a body like theirs was just simply inconceivable to them. See, whatever their objection was, they were mistaken in their thinking. And, and the way that Paul is going to sh- go about correcting their wrong thinking is by first pointing them to an illustration of resurrection that God has worked into the very fabric of nature, that of planting and growing crops. They were all familiar with the process of sowing a seed in the ground that died, and then over a process of several months, they grew into something very different than that original seed. And yet, there was also continuity. They planted a seed of grain, and they got a crop of grain, not a crop of geraniums. There was continuity there. So resurrection is not as impossible or as improbable as they thought because it happens continuously, Paul is saying, on a very small scale in the plant world. And you should know this, guys, he's saying. And this is where we'll begin next week 
we'll start learning from the Father's illustration. John Owen, one of the greatest Puritan theologians, he died in the year 1683 at the age of 67. And in his last hours, as he lay dying in his bed, he dictated a short letter to a friend. And when his secretary, who had written everything down, was reading the words of his letter back to him, he began the letter with, with saying what John Owen had said, I am yet in the land of the living. And Owen immediately stopped him. He said, stop, alter that. He said, write this. I am yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. All of us are here in the land of the dying. It's a beautiful land. And it's filled with many beautiful things to enjoy, but don't let them distract you from where you are headed in just a few short years that the Bible says will pass by you like a vapor. There is a far more beautiful existence that awaits all who put their hope in Christ. And there is a far better body that God will give His people to enjoy that better place. God will resurrect and transform your earthly body into one fashioned by His power to glorify Christ forever. But you must first repent and turn to Christ in faith. While God has appointed Him the judge of all men, God first sent His Son to be the Savior of all men, to rescue sinners. No one knows when that day of judgment is going to come. Not you, not me. Jesus is not even Him. But it's coming. And until that time, He promises to save all those who come to Him in repentant faith. If you know that you need Him to save you from the condemnations that your sins deserve, if you're living enslaved to that fear of death because you know in your heart of hearts that after it comes judgment, then ask Him to save you. All on your own, you can just speak to Him in prayer. Confess your need of Him as Savior and then receive Him as Lord and begin to follow Him. We'd love for that. It happened today if it hasn't already happened. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You don't leave us wondering about important things. Thank You for instructing us from Your Word about a glorious future. And we have much more to talk about still, about the bodies in which we will serve You and glorify You in forever. And You tell us these things because they matter. Because the things that we do in this body this body's not going away it's just going to be transformed oh Lord let it move us to, to live for you obediently we ask this in Jesus name Amen